your host, Riri. Welcome to Reimagining Life from Pain to Purpose, where you'll find a community focused on resilience and perseverance, sharing untold stories of hope and rebuilding while dealing with major life interruption. This podcast is made by and for people in the process of reimagining their lives. We're here to raise the voices of those who often suffer in silence, living with chronic pain and or disability. This space is for you. We encourage you to get involved. So stick around and let's jump right into the next episode. Welcome to Reimagining Life, episode 11. Today, we welcome Felipe, who was born in southern Mexico with spina bifida. In his early days, doctors predicted a short lifespan or a life with severely limited function. He, much like his parents, refused to give up. Felipe continues to be an overachiever, breaking all molds and expectations of doctors and colleagues. Felipe has worked at the Department of Labor in various roles for more than a decade. He's currently the Disability Program Manager in the Office of Human Resources, where he focuses on the department's efforts to recruit, hire, and retain individuals with disabilities. Felipe has a wide breadth of professional experience, including working in international development, volunteering with Mental Health Hotline, making various presentations on disability and other topics, and serving on committees to advocate for all people with disabilities. In this episode, we'll learn about Felipe's story, how he has outlived and outperformed every estimate he was given, and how he continues to think creatively and thrive. As you'll hear, Felipe is incredibly open and honest about things related to life with spina bifida that are very challenging. Felipe is able to share a unique perspective as a person living with a disability that evolves over time and working to increase representation of people with disabilities within the Department of Labor. Felipe is well-versed in the U.S. government's policies and quotas and explains a bit about what's going on behind the scenes, but it's important to note that he is not speaking to us on behalf of the government. He's sharing his personal views based on his personal experience. Okay, welcome Felipe to the podcast. We are very excited to have you here with us today. Would you please share with us... What makes you a reimaginer? Give us the background. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for having me, and thank you so much for you know having these conversations. I think they're they have been incredibly powerful and 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 meaningful. So I am privileged uh, to be a guest on oh, your podcast. You. So I was born with spina bifida, and so essentially my spine and my spinal cord were not formed properly during pregnancy. And so there's like a whole bunch of things that kind of contribute to spina bifida. And some of it is genetics and some of it is uh, moms not always getting enough folic acid during uh, during pregnancy and kind of depending on where along the spine that sort of injury or that failure to close properly happens, that's mm-hmm. kind of how severe the effects will be. So for me, uh, my spina bifida is kind of on on the lumbar side of the of my back, mm-hmm. and it means that I can walk with some difficulty. And I usually use a cane and um, or some trekking poles to to get around. Uh, I have a fair amount of of chronic pain, uh, and then some 
some issues with uh, neuropathy, so the ability to feel things on my on the soles of my of my feet. I I once uh, stepped on a nail and it went through my shoe, and I didn't even notice for a while. Uh, and and then a lot of issues around continence, so around emptying bladder or bowel in a way that's that's you know kind of works or that is sort of normal. So I've I've always kind of struggled with those things. Uh, I would imagine that's a lot. I mean. Are pretty basic functions that most people, I think, take for granted. But thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, I've been and I've been looking at a lot, you know. So some of the statistics that I saw out there is that there's anywhere from about 125 to about 160,000 people with spina bifida in the U.S. And it's actually, I think, the one of the more common uh, disabling birth defects that that they're that there are. And I think, you know, even, even when I was born, I think my mom was told that life expectancy at the time, if you didn't do anything about it immediately, it was about five years old and now I'm pushing wow. 40. So I'm winning. <laughs> uh, you sure are. Wow. I can't imagine how hard that must've been for your mom. It's shocking. Wow. Okay. So clearly you've had to be super adaptive and creative. So can you tell us what types of limitations have you had to find solutions for? And how do you sort of reimagine going about your life, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, you know, how do you sort of deal with all that you've got going on while still living life and you're very much living life? Yeah. And I think it's been, it's been, and I think some of your other guests have referred to this as well, but there's been sort of a, an individual reimagining and then reimagining at the level of, of family and stuff. And so I remember, well, I don't remember, but my mom would tell me about uh, my, the first surgery I had, which was about when I was about five days old. Mm-hmm. And they had to fly me to uh, Mexico City. So I was born in the state of Chiapas in the southeast of Mexico, about 600 miles southeast of Mexico City. And uh, they had to put me on a passenger plane, but they, they told the flight attendants that I was however many months old was the was oh the legal uh, oh age to first be on an airplane. And I, How did you get away with that? And they were like, well, you were a big baby. And they, you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that helped. Uh, and so I had a couple of surgeries in Mexico City and then in the United States to put in like a, a, a valve in my head because I wasn't draining uh, fluid, a condition called hydrocephaly. So I wasn't draining uh, that fluid fast enough. And so my head at one point was growing, I think, about an inch every two and a half days, which is wow. not really what you want your head to be uh, growing at. Um and so, yeah, I mean, and then on the continent side, improvising things like I, my mom made me cloth diapers when I was a, a kid so that I could go to school. And I've used a, a catheter to empty my bladder since I was eight. And so for a while, we had to um, we had to buy these catheters, but the only place where you could buy them was Mexico City, which is 600 miles away. Oof. And... So we'd buy, you know, a couple of hundred catheters at a time because, I mean, if you think about having to use a catheter every couple of hours 
while you're awake, that's about eight catheters a day. That's, I don't know, somewhere around 2,900 catheters a year. And so I would buy a couple of hundred catheters at a time, and then I would put them in the, reuse them by cleaning them out in the microwave with a mixture of water and vinegar to kind of sterilize them and then wrap them in plastic wrap with, uh, with jelly. Uh, and that's how I would transport them. Wow. And, um, and, and yeah, for a while now, I've actually used um, a suprapubic catheter. So it's a catheter that is inserted through like a puncture wound under uh, the stomach. And then it's held in place by, by a balloon. I had an incident several years ago now where I was using a catheter the normal way. And I don't know, it wasn't, there wasn't enough lubricant or something. And so I ended up ripping a little bit of tissue out of the urethra and blocking it. And so I had to sort of emergency have a, had this sort of puncture wound put in and then this other type of catheter uh, in place. And so I've been using that for a while. So yeah, there's, there's been all kinds of, you know, creative things to, to try and, you know, keep myself alive and, and help. Yeah. It sounds like your parents must be, and, and you obviously are, super adaptive and creative trying to you know find solutions for if you can't get your hands on eight catheters a day i mean that's a lot from a young age wow yeah yeah and i, and I really appreciate it i mean I've, I've been lucky and privileged enough to have you know my parents really uh be supportive i also for a while was coming to the united states every three months and then every six months for a total of about six years when I was from when I was eight to the time I was 14. And so each trip was like an 18 hour bus ride from Chiapas to Mexico city. And then a couple of plane, uh, plane flights to Chicago and then a bus ride to Milwaukee. And then you kind of did it all in reverse. And then you did it again, uh, three months later. And so I remember my mom at one point read all of uh, the book Treasure Island onto a cassette tape <laughs> so that my siblings could listen to her read to Aww. them every night. Um, and my dad would fax me these encur- letters of encouragement because there was no email and the post oh office would take God. forever. So, yeah. That's, that's so great. So, wow. So your family is really supportive and I'm sure that, yes. that speaks to how you became who you are. So when you were coming to Milwaukee, were you coming for medical reasons? If you don't mind my asking? Yeah. So there was, um, they had a spina bifida multi-specialty clinic at a hospital that was called St. Michael's Hospital. And it eventually, I think they ran into difficulties, financial difficulties. And I think it was actually torn down in like the mid 2000s. But it was, uh, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, just running around and going to this uh, treatment called bladder stimulation. And so they would essentially sort of hook you up with a, with a catheter and then they would sort of run these very low level electrical impulses up through your leg. And the idea was that they were trying to strengthen the muscle through these mm-hmm. electrical impulses so that it would contract and release uh, appropriately. And it was pretty experimental at the time. There were only a handful of places that did it around the country. 
And uh, now when I talk about it, people look at me as if I was talking about leeching, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I think I remember reading about that in like a medical history textbook. But at the time, it was uh, it was pretty cutting edge. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, as an adult, how have you sort of reimagined being able to live a daily life? Yeah, I mean, I think each phase has had some interesting, some interesting challenges. I think you know, part of part of, for example, having uh, a catheter, especially a catheter like the one I have that stays in your body for a couple of weeks at a time, is that there's always uh, bacteria growing in on the inside, and so every time I go and get any sort of test, it's always like, oh, well, you're colonized with bacteria and so we kind of need to know whether this is like a real infection or whether it's just you know it just kind of says it's positive because you already have all these bacteria living in you and um and so yeah i deal with kind of constant uh utis and trying to balance out taking antibiotics but at the same time not creating like monster resistance to all the antibiotics out there uh so that's been that's been a challenge. And I think emotionally as well, uh, I'm often, I think, sort of confronted with what my body can and, and can't do. And sometimes that that weighs on me, especially when it comes to things like continents, where, where I sometimes have anxiety about going out and meeting people because I don't know whether... I'll have like a bathroom incident and is there a public bathroom and, and, and is it, you know, sort of clean enough for me to do what I have to do. And so there's a lot of things that, that I often feel I'm trying to, to, to balance, to try and, you know, keep myself healthy. And at the same time, uh, know that it's not going to be perfect. Yeah, of course. I mean, it makes total sense. And so that that kind of leads me into the the next question, which is related. So, you know, you've talked a bit about some of the self-care needs that you have, and I'm sure you have many more. How have you been able to work towards your professional goals while managing your personal needs? That is a fantastic question. And I think there's sort of two levels to that. I think one is like the the what I wanted to be in the first place. I remember mm-hmm. I was about 10 or 11 years old. And when I would go up to Milwaukee for the medical treatments, I would stay at a place called the Ronald McDonald House. And it's this amazing house that's funded by, I think, McDonald's Charities in part and by other uh, donations. And it's for kids and their families uh, when the kids are going to medical treatment. And I think it's up Mm. to ages 18 in some cases or 21, I think, in in others. But it's just this amazing place where you had all of these families and you had all of these kids going for different treatments and, and not feeling alone. You were always talking. There were video games. There were arcades. There was a library. uh, There were you know, all of these things, there were dinners for all the families. It was just an amazing place. Wow. And I remember talking to this kid who was about my age, and we were both maybe around 10 or 11. And we were playing this video game. And we just started talking about why we both thought we wanted to be doctors. And, 
And it was interesting, I think, because even at 10, we both realized that we hadn't encountered a doctor who had said, you know, oh, I have spina bifida too, right? We'd never seen a doctor in a wheelchair. We'd never seen a nurse uh, who said, oh, yeah, hydrocephaly. I got that. Want to feel my shun? (laughs) Have five. (laughs) Um, And so I think we had kind of thought that we had to be uh, doctors because we kind of knew what it was like to be patients. And I really uh, stuck to that up until high school. And then I kind of realized that all of the vocational little tests that I was doing were saying, you belong in the social sciences. And and Hmm. I was kind of resisting that. And then I realized that, you know, my grades were not great in in biology and chemistry and all the things that you kind of want to be good at if you want to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that really sort of hit me hard. And so uh, in Mexico, in high school, actually, you have to choose a track for your last year of high school. So you go either into physics, math, or chemistry, biology, or economics and administration, or social science and humanities. Huh. Um, and then you go directly like from high school into med school or engineering school or stuff. And I was, I really went into a funk because I went into like the chemistry biology and I just wasn't getting it. And so it has taken me, I think a while to figure out kind of what I wanted to do. And I eventually came to the United States for college and, and majored in political science and so it's been, in a way, the stuff that I've done has tried to get me back to thinking about disability and making a difference in that way, but not mm-hmm. in the way that I kind of expected. Right. Um, so I think that's been interesting. And then specifically, at the end of college, I remember applying to the, the Peace Corps, and I went kind of head over heels for mm-hmm. the, the Peace Corps. Like, that's what I was going to do. And... At the time, they've redone their application process. I think they've overhauled it several times. But at the time when I applied, they gave you your acceptance kind of in pieces. And so Mm. I had gotten a letter that said, oh, your application looks great. Look forward to the next step. And then I got a medical rejection letter saying, you know, based on your history, we can't accept you to the Peace Corps based on your medical history. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, I got another letter saying, congratulations, your legal clearance went through. And so, oh my I, God. <laughs> so I had to write them back and say like, so, you know, two out of three, does that mean I'm in? And they're like, <laughs> no, uh, no, we can't, uh, we can't accept you. And it was like the first time that my disability had been kind of this deciding factor for something that I could not do. Um, But then sometime later, I came into the federal government where I am now at the Department of Labor through a hiring authority to encourage people with disabilities into federal government. And so there's been, I think, this dance between the role that disability has played in either being this sort of obstacle or this thing that's been, uh, that's actually opened some doors. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's really cool how you recognize, you know, that as a young kid, you wanted to be sort of an example for other kids who might have similar conditions or limiting things. You couldn't do it the way that you initially thought you wanted to. And so you 
took a slightly different path, but you still ended up really being true to the community and providing some pretty amazing examples for other students or kids who might be like you were when you were, you know, a youngster. That's, that's kind of what I'm, what I, what I hope. And that's, that's something that I, I, I strive to, to do. And then, yeah, I mean, there, there's also the, the day to day for a while, I was doing a lot of traveling for, for work before I entered the federal government. And so, yeah, I mean, to your question about some of the logistics, I mean, sometimes it got hard when I was going to certain countries. And again, I was trying to wrap all of these, you know, trying to take a couple of hundred catheters with me so that I could have some for my trip and trying to Mm -hmm. find like bathrooms and, and trying to make sure that I could change if I had like a bathroom related accident and feeling very sort of mortified about that. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it can be a whole sort of logistical thing, uh, as well. And now I'm, I'm working from home most of the time, which has actually made things um, a lot easier for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I very much appreciate that. But the times when I've have had to go into the office, there's always this uh, angst about, you know, do I, do I have what I need uh, to be able to handle whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. comes out disability wise. It sounds like a real challenge. So I'm wondering, as you're navigating the personal and professional worlds, do you feel like your privacy has been respected or do you feel like you you kind of had to share more in your professional circumstances than you wanted in order to get the accommodations that you need? So that's a super interesting and that's a great question. And... I think there's kind of what people know in theory and then there's what people feel in practice. And so for me, you know, I mean, so legally people are not allowed to ask you about a specific, you know, diagnosis Mm -hmm. or symptoms and there's like HIPAA and all of these sort of privacy laws that, that are supposed to protect people from, from having to disclose that kind of specific information. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, when I, first started in the government, one of the things that I had to do in order to be accepted under this hiring authority was to provide a letter from uh, my doctor that I was eligible. But Mm. the HR office was very clear that that letter should not have, you know, any specific diagnosis, any specific symptoms, any indication that this was like a chronic condition. All it had to say was, per this specific regulation, this person is eligible for this hiring authority. And mm-hmm. and it was interesting because I actually wanted the doctor to include my diagnosis in there. It's like, no, I want people to know that it has a name and that it's real and that I'm not just sort of making it up to like game the wow. system and stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, and so I had to, you know, then get them to to take off what they had written about, about spina bifida. Um mm. So for me, I've always felt kind of an internal pressure to kind of share what's going on with me because I think, I don't know, disability sometimes feels, I know there's like a picture that gets thrown around online of kind of the iceberg and there's kind of the, the, what people see about disability. And then there's like a whole lot under the surface that people don't see. Um, And sometimes that's a little bit, and sometimes that's most of the disability that's, that's invisible, but I feel like I was doing these things where 
where I like had to, you know, sit down all of a sudden because I really wanted to go to the bathroom and I knew I wasn't going to make it if I didn't sit down. And how do you explain that to your boss, right? Or how do you explain that to, to like a manager? And so I would definitely desperately try to minimize what I was feeling and just say, oh, well, it's just a cramp. It's just a pain. You know, you go ahead, I'll catch up. And so I think I felt a lot of internal pressure to do that. Yeah. I don't know that I felt any external pressure to like disclose or hide my disability kind of one way or another to get the tools that I needed. But I know it does happen. I know people either feel very uncomfortable saying anything or even requesting the tools they need because they feel that people will correlate needing tools with not being able to do the job. Yeah. Um, or people will feel that they will be treated uh, you know, unequally uh, versus their 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 peers. It must have been kind of mixed, like you said, because you're trying to hide the things that you didn't want to explain. And then at the same time, you didn't want to be held back just because of your disability. Like there's more to you than just your disability. So it, it sounds like walking the tightrope. Did it feel that way? Yeah. And I think, I mean, when I was a, when I was a kid, I remember kind of asking my mom why I had spina bifida or why God had given me spina bifida. And she just kind of asked me, well, what is it like to have it? Like she didn't want to give me an answer that I would be stuck with. And Mm -hmm. I just kind of told her, you know, that it hurt and that I was, you know, occasionally picked on because I didn't make it to the bathroom. I was always smelling a little funky and, and and at some point, a few days later, I was so excited and I told my mom, I, I, you know, I know it. I know why I have spina bifida. And I said, well, it's because it's like my shadow. Sometimes it seems a lot bigger than me. Sometimes it seems so small that I could just sort of step on it and it would disappear. Mm-hmm. But it's always going to be with me. It's always going to walk right beside me. It's going to be this thing that I struggle with, that I feel mad or sad about. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe I have the shadows so that I can listen and see other people's shadows. And I was so happy with that explanation. And I think, you know, it still rings true for me that sometimes it feels like this sort of all encompassing thing where the only thing I can think about is, is like the disability part of things and what I, and and how I need to do things in spite of my disability. Mm-hmm. And then other times it feels like it's the thing that gives me a certain amount of empathy and a certain amount of perspective and that there are things that I can do because of my disability. And, and so that, I think that dance is, is always kind of, uh, I'm always kind of dancing with that shadow. Yeah. Wow. That's a great image. How old were you when you came up with that? I was about eight or nine or something. And my mom looked oh my at me God. Like, <laughs> you were <laughs> quite a profound youngster. <laughs> yeah. And it really like shows, I mean, your attitude and your approach, which are pretty inspiring. So you mentioned you have a pretty cool job. You mentioned a little bit about it, that you work at DOL, but could you share with us a bit about your work? You know, how are you working to help others with disability and what is Schedule A? Just give us a little bit more info on 
sort of what you do and how do you help people? Yeah, so I've been at uh, at DOL almost 11 years, and I spent about 10 of them doing things that were not related to disability, a lot of strategic planning and performance indicators and, and things. And then this opportunity came up to be a part of the our Office of Human Resources and to be a disability program manager, to sort of look at the ways in which we hire and, and retain individuals with disabilities at, at the department. And, you know, it has, I think, a kind of an interesting history. I mean, there's there was a an executive order back in the year 2000 to hire 100,000 individuals with disabilities in five years. And that didn't happen. So there was another executive order in 2010 to try and hire that, to make that number by 2015. Uh, And then it finally, I think they finally managed the hiring part in 2016. And so it's like taken this long, a long time to try and figure out how to get folks with disabilities into the government when typically there might've been grounds for, for, uh, for excluding them. Right. And so Schedule A eventually comes up as this way of kind of streamlining the hiring process. Uh, for example, if you are eligible for Schedule A hiring, you're mostly competing against other Schedule A applicants. And so the universe of people applying for a job kind of gets reduced significantly. There's, there's ways to... Um, also kind of make sure that folks have accommodations even during the interview process, like if you need a sign language interpreter and mm-hmm. and all of that. And that, I mean, those accommodations kind of happen regardless, but, but Schedule A is just a way to get more applicants that have disabilities or, or targeted disabilities. So targeted disabilities are kind of more severe mm-hmm. um, disabilities that have historically had a lot of issues uh, with with getting jobs, so things like uh, like amputees or more sort of severe psychiatric disabilities or cognitive disabilities that have generally kind of had a, a harder time uh, getting into federal service because of a certain amount of, of discrimination and just they've been you know sort of overlooked. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, one needs to provide a transcript and a resume and again a, a, a letter. On, on letterhead with, uh, with an accredited uh, physician or from somebody who does uh, provides like disability related uh, vocational rehabilitation or disability services that just says that one is eligible uh, for Schedule A under uh, the law, which I think is like 5 CFR 213.3102U, right? It's like this very <laughs> sort of complicated law in the code of federal regulations uh and then and again i think it's trying to get at this representation gap that we talked about you know sort of yeah. earlier with the medical profession but i mean if you looking at the government um there's a study out i think from last year that says there's about nine nine percent nine and a half percent of federal employees are persons with disabilities. And then you compare that with about 26% of the general population that have 
disabilities. And so there's a gap in in representation, but also that percentage of federal employees, they they get a lot of that by people self-reporting that they have mm-hmm. uh, a disability. And so you often run into folks, you know, of course, not wanting to disclose right. that they have a disability because of, you know, some of the issues that, that we talked about of, right. of maybe managers making assumptions of what folks can and can't do um, when they share that they have a disability. Wow. I'm still thinking about that 100,000 number, which is really not that much. I, I, it's just kind of shocking that it took that long to reach that goal. Wow. Yeah, and that's just the hiring part, right? And then, I yeah. mean, there's still a lot of issues when it comes to actually, like, retaining and, and promoting individuals with, with disabilities. And, I mean, something I should kind of share off the top, and I should have said maybe at the beginning, I mean, all of this is, you know, sort of based on my own personal knowledge and expertise. I don't pretend to speak on behalf of, you know, DOL or the government or OPM or, or anybody, just kind of using my own uh, expertise on on some of this but sure but but it is it is uh interesting that it has been such a challenge to 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 get to that number that was supposed to be achievable in you know five years and it, and it took about you know 16. Wow yeah Ooh, we've got our work cut out for us. <laughs> Indeed. And do you know Maybe you don't have it sort of offhand. What? How do they define disability? Like, is there a set definition that you know? Um, so that is a good question. And I think they give a lot of examples more than... Well, actually, the EEOC has, uh, has a definition of disability that is, like, very broad. It's, uh, it's something like uh, if you have certain certain types of uh, impairments or even like the perception of, of mm-hmm. having a disability. So it's like, it's very, very, it's very, very broad. And I, yeah. I don't have it off the top of my head, but it is okay. like, it's supposed to cover kind of this very wide um, mm. definition, uh, yeah. which I think also the, so the ADA, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act kind of defined that as well when it was passed in like 1990 but mm-hmm. then there was uh there was an amendment act to the ADA in i think like 2008 where it also expanded the definition of of disability so i mean so the ADA says a person with a disability is someone with a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits a major life activity or has a record of such an impairment or is regarded as having such an impairment. So hmm. it's it's it is pretty it is pretty broad. So October is National Disability Awareness Month. And you told me that it it's this year is advancing access and equity. So what does that really mean in practice and does it only apply to government funded organizations? Like how is it being celebrated? So it's, I mean, it's meant to be for sort of all workplaces to take a moment and think about how they, how they provide, uh, how, how they can improve accessibility to workplaces. And that can mean, you know, sort of physical accessibility in terms of having 
buttons that automatically kind of open and close doors. It can mean uh, having documents, for example, if you format documents a certain way, they're easier to read mm-hmm. by certain screen readers and certain types of, uh, of technology. And there's uh, actually another law, Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act, that mandates, for example, that all uh, federal government documents and computer systems have to be legible by these uh, screen readers and, oh, wow. and other technology. So that's sort of only for the federal government, but the ADA also covers some of these these things of removing barriers towards sort of accessing physical spaces and accessing information. And so National Disability Employment Awareness Month is, I mean, an opportunity to have people think about uh, disability in the in the in the workplace uh disabilities i think people are thinking about it also more in terms of intersections with with race and with gender and with other identities where where there's already kind of a historic discrimination on account of one thing and then you're sort of layering disability on top of that and so how do we how do we get more access to those communities and how do those communities have more access to better employment opportunities and have more accessible uh, workplaces. And so I think that's the, that's the spirit behind it. And every year there's kind of a different theme and there's uh, the office of disability employment policy at the department of labor has like a whole list of like suggested things to think about, uh, accessibility for any size sort of uh, workplace and mm. and they do a lot of events and I think they roll out like a public service announcement like a commercial and uh, and and other things and I think it's it's a it's a good thing to kind of pause and and think about that uh, but I was reading this quote I think from a, a person that does a lot of training in this space and where it says um culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think that's something that I, you know, I think that's something to, to work on that we sometimes have a whole lot of strategies to include people and stuff. But then if the culture into which they're coming to yeah. is not respectful of persons with disabilities or is not inclusive or it's not, I don't know, accessibility also often seems like uh, an Acceptance. oversight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or, or like an afterthought. I remember actually at one point we were renewing uh, our computer system or something, the operating system, but but people didn't necessarily check when when we were making the, the orders. There wasn't a coordination to make sure that the computers had enough memory for some of these programs to help folks with disabilities mm-hmm. read documents and screen readers. And so the computers were crashing because the oh operating systems were too f- full, right? And so then people had to do all this sort of retrofitting and mm-hmm. and stuff to kind of get the software uh, to talk to each other. And and so again, that's, that's, you know, that's sometimes even from the design of a particular software or a computer system, it's like, oh, well, we have the program, but it's not accessible. So you need you know, three other programs to be able to actually use it and, and, and things like that. So that I think, 
I think months like these are an important reminder to think about these things and and to try and inch towards kind of thinking about these things from the beginning and not just like, oh yeah, I guess we at some point need to think about how to make this thing accessible. Yeah. And I mean, it, it reflects back to what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. I mean, the devil is in the details. You can't, I mean, you can make these overarching high level strategies, but if you can't put two things together to make a very simple thing, then it's going to fall apart. As far as how I'm celebrating it, I mean, I'm putting together probably a couple of events for like DOL employees. We have a like an employee resources group, so a group of employees with sort of visible and invisible disabilities, and we partner with them to uh, to put on events. Sometimes we demonstrate different types of technology. Sometimes oh, cool. we talk about like the hiring process overall. So we'll 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 probably come up with something for for October. That's very cool. So I also know that you're an incredibly giving person who, on top of working full time and managing, you know, your own personal needs and pain, you have volunteered a ton to help others through, you know, the suicide prevention hotline and other things. So what can you tell me, what have you learned from from these experiences? I mean, I'm sure that it's brought in a ton. Share some of that with us. Sure. I mean, I think, yeah. So I, uh, so when I got my first job, I moved sort of after college, I moved back to Mexico after the Peace Corps thing kind of fell through and kind of didn't know what to do with my life and eventually moved to the DC area in 2007, like the very beginning of the year. And when I got my first uh, job, I saw that a lot of my colleagues were volunteering for different things. And and I, it, it struck me because when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of formal volunteer opportunities. You kind of did mm. things either by yourself or through the church, or it's kind of like your, your family kind of took care of you. And if you didn't have your family, then you were kind of out of luck. Mm-hmm. And, but here in the U.S., I remember, I mean, even my, my grandparents, so my, my mom, my mom is from the U.S. and my father is from Mexico. My grandparents on my mom's side were volunteering even, you know, into their 90s with like wow. on wheels and teaching English to speakers of other languages and stuff. Um, and so I was impressed by that. And I found this organization that did mental health work and, and was connected to these mental health uh, crisis hotlines at the state and county level, and then were one of the nodes or one of the one of the centers that received calls from the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, uh, which is nine eight eight for the past year or so. And so I just was curious and decided to volunteer uh, volunteer there, and I did that for a total of about 12 and a half years, sort of 10 years as a volunteer, and then two and a half years as a less than part-time staff. And I think, I think I learned in the end that we're all, we're all a recessive gene or a traumatic event away from feeling pretty hopeless. And, but for the power of community, and sometimes community can mean one person, but when you have a community, whether it's of one or 1,000, 
that that helps you get through uh, some tough times. And and I've experienced that, you know, over time with with my own disability or uh, when the younger of my two brothers passed away, it was like I was feeling pretty hopeless and having um, some survivor's guilt, right? That, yeah. that, uh, that my brother at 27 had had died very suddenly. And, and here mm. I was, you know, kind of trying to keep myself patched together. And, and it was really community that helped, uh, helped me out, that helped my, my family out. And so, and so, yeah, I, I, I always uh, look back on that experience as something that, that provided me the opportunity to be community for somebody else and sometimes see how people uh, sort of survive and, and keep themselves together because of the system. And unfortunately, sometimes they have to sort of keep each other, keep themselves together in spite of the system. You know, we, with COVID, there were so many shelters and services mm-hmm. that kind of uh, were limited or, or kind of shut down. And so, and so that's, that's definitely something that, uh, that I learned. And it's something that I hope to take to, you know, whatever the next, the next thing that I do uh, as a volunteer. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit about what you've been doing and sort of where you think you might be going with that? Yeah, I think uh, I've been, uh, I realized that, uh, that I, there were a lot of things that I wanted to just express and, and think about this idea of, of being in, in an interesting space of having grown up kind of outside of the United States, you know, with a disability, sort of between these sort of two worlds of, of Mexico and the United States and different perspectives on, on disability. And so I, uh, I have been keeping not very regularly, but I have been keeping uh, a blog about that and just trying to uh, encourage some some conversation. So most of them start out with a particular experience that I might have had, and then try to tease out some some broader question uh, from there. And so, uh, for example, one of the the posts is about how. Uh, a woman drove up uh, right next to where I was walking one time and decided to come and put her hands on my head and start praying for me, oh. sort of unsolicited, and prayed for my back and prayed for my for my legs and everything, and then got back into her car and drove away, um, oh. and and just you know things like that. Uh, you know, a man who told me that if I only prayed in the right way, then then my you know disability would disappear and stuff oh and my so goodness. and so i tried to wrestle with these themes of like what does it mean for some people to think you're sort of special because of your disability and some people might think that you're sort of suspect or morally uh morally bad you know that disability is like the physical manifestation of some moral deficiency and uh, and so i try and kind of tease out these sort of broader questions from from these experiences and it's been great to try and you know both develop a a writing style and then try and uh wrestle with some of these 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 themes yeah i mean i've read a number of them and they're very profound i mean you reflect on some pretty important stuff and 
those couple of examples, I have to say, are horrible. And I just, I can't understand why people, people can't see how that's disturbing. Um, but I, I'm glad that you're able to sort of put it in perspective and, well, you can move on, but, you know, the bandage is, is the wound is there, but hopefully it gets smaller as time goes by. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, I've, and I've been trying to do them in, in English and in Spanish. So the, the blog is, is uh, enabled slash habilitado thoughts on disability or reflexiones mm. sobre discapacidad. And I've been trying to do them in both languages to kind of reach a broader audience and kind of bridge those ideas sort of across, you know, sort of language and, and culture and, and countries. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. We'll share, we'll share a link to it in the show notes for this episode. So folks can take a look. Now we've come to our rapid fire five for five questions. Please answer honestly and quickly, whatever comes to mind. So the first one is what's your favorite sound? Ooh, my favorite sound is uh, the human voice. I, I love singing and I love listening to, to, to music. So yes, the mm. human voice. Nice. Okay. What's your favorite word? My favorite word. Uh, my favorite word. Oh, that's a great question. It is... <laughs> um, I don't know, gargantuan, like the way it sounds. Wow, that's a powerful one. Okay. This one is, what is your favorite guilty pleasure? Um, or if you don't believe in guilty pleasures, what's just your favorite thing then? <laughs> well, guilty pleasures is, is I, I'm, 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 I'm like my dog. I'm very food motivated. So anything <laughs> that has... Um, chocolate in it i'm the i'm like the bozo that buys like uh like granola or trail mix with like chocolate in it and then spend all my time picking out the chocolate (laughs) dedicated very dedicated okay what's something that you've learned that you wish other people would understand what is something i learned um so i have learned to question whether I am committed to something or whether I'm just attached to something. Mm. And I think about these instances that I talked about earlier about like feeling that I needed to be a doctor or that I needed to be, a, uh, you know, in the Peace Corps or something. And like, that was the only way to make a difference. And I think if my 17, 18 year old self were to know that 20, 22 years down the line, I would be you know, having this conversation with you and that I would be uh, talking to, about, you know, mental health and and partnering with organizations uh, around disability and stuff. I think there's a part of me that would be immensely relieved because that's kind mm-hmm. of all I ever wanted. My, my commitment was to just be in these conversations. And I just ended up often being so attached to like the way it had to look. So mm-hmm. that's a lesson that I keep banging my head against the wall to, to learn, but I've been learning wow. slowly. 
that is extremely well thought out and totally beyond what usually five for five answer would be. And so good that you actually answered the fifth question, which was what advice would you give to an 18 year old you? So yeah. Bravo Felipe. (laughs) You killed it. Okay. So anything else you wanted to add? Those are all my questions. And I just want to sort of give you the space if there's anything else you wanted to say. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we, we definitely have kind of a long, a long way to go in terms of how we think about, uh, how we think about disability. I've, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, the, the relationship between, and, and you, you kind of brought this up before, but the, the, the relationship between disability and mental health, mental health and, and disability. I've been thinking a lot about how we, how we treat uh, disability. Oftentimes, I think it's easy to just feel like like an old car that somebody's trying to like put together, and it's hard to see like the beauty of something uh, like mm-hmm. your body when it's sort of being poked and prodded and yeah. kind of not acknowledged. And I think you know, especially as kids, I think we, I, I think kids often uh, learn that on the one hand, their body is like sacred and and very private and you know people shouldn't be messing with their with their body but that doesn't always translate well in a medical setting where like the very first thing is like you know let's poke and prod you and and sometimes even go into these spaces that are supposed to be very very private and so mm-hmm. i've been thinking a lot about that and how we bridge kind of those those gaps uh, as well definitely food for thought for a lifetime. Yeah. Great points. Well, you've done an amazing job of you're so thoughtful and open with your thoughts and feelings that I think the blog and what you've shared with us today are are really important and inspirational. So thanks for doing that. Thank you for having me. You put the awe in awesome and rock to the point of deserving a geology degree. And <laughs> I'm glad that, um, you know, really thank you for having these, these, these conversations. I, I learned something every, every episode. And I think having these conversations and empowering people to, to share their story is a critical part of how we get to where we want to be from like this broader cultural change so thank you for for who you are and thank you for who other people get to be uh, in the space you create for them a huge thank you to Felipe for coming on the podcast sharing his very personal experiences and really being vulnerable his incredible strength resilience and creativity continue to shine through as a young child Felipe wanted to be a doctor to serve as an example of a person with a disability who could relate to what he was feeling. Later on, when Felipe learned that chemistry and biology were not his greatest strengths, he had to revise his plan, but he knew he wanted to find a way to give back to others with disabilities. From a young age, Felipe and his family learned to reimagine his needs and family life in order to help him receive the treatments and supplies he needed. As a young adult, Felipe found what he thought was his calling, 
the Peace Corps. He was so excited and couldn't wait to join. Unfortunately, he received a letter of rejection due to his medical history. This was the first time his disability was a deciding factor. Felipe spoke about how he had seen disability as both an obstacle and at the same time helping open some doors. He eventually joined the federal workforce through a Schedule A hire, a track designed to recruit people with disabilities. Felipe has come full circle. Though he's faced a number of disappointments, he is absolutely reaching his childhood goal of helping others like him. While discussing the federal government's goal of hiring 100,000 people with disabilities in five years, and then that it actually took 16 to reach that goal, it's rather shocking that this was such a challenge to reach. Felipe shared some feedback and insight he's heard from colleagues over the years that might speak to why individuals with disabilities might be hesitant to participate such as the feeling that asking for accommodations draws more unwanted attention, reduces privacy, and can make it look like individuals can't do the job they're hired for, which is, of course, couldn't be further from the truth. He also spoke about hearing familiar echoes to his own story. People are surviving in spite of the systems in place, as well as thanks to them. As Felipe mentioned, he has a personal blog, where he revisits past experiences and teases out broader questions for reflection, published in English and Spanish. You can find a link to his blog in this episode's show note. Thanks for listening to Reimagining Life from Pain to Purpose. We're always interested to hear your feedback and questions. So leave a review and drop us a note at reimagininglifepodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode.